Welcome to, uh, to this talk. Uh, the, the Dean of, of the Paris School of International Affairs, uh, along with the Department of International Relations, are, are, we are working together to uh, open the first of a lecture series, that w an annual lecture series, that will reflect our shared cooperation between uh, the LSE's uh, double degree program, uh, in international relations and the programs generally we run with our colleagues at Sciences Po. We're very pleased to have as the first uh, of, of these lectures uh, uh, the dean of, of the Paris School, uh, Enrico Letta. Um, we're, uh, <clears throat> he is here to speak about uh, Brexit, a very topical uh, theme of the, of the day, extremely topical. It's hard to get more uh, topical than this at this particular venture. I just wanted to say one or two words about our cooperation with uh, uh, the International Relations Department and more generally the school with Sciences Po. We were, we were discussing this earlier, the significance of, of um, uh, our cooperation. We have a dual degree program, a program that uh, many of the, uh, some of the people in the audience are participants of. It's a program that uh, brings the, the best of, of Sciences Po in, in looking at international affairs topics to, uh, uh, to the LSE uh, over two, a two-year period. They do one year at Sciences Po and one year at, at uh, the International Relations Department. And I have to say, it's a bedrock. It's been going on for over a decade, and it's a bedrock of the kind of programs we'd like to see European-wide. Uh, uh, it, it shares the skills uh, and outreach of, a public, of, a, of the leading public policy institute in, Europe, uh, in the continental Europe with uh, that of Britain. Um, so, uh, so I have the... the uh, honor of uh, welcoming all of you and saying something about uh, uh, um, uh, Mr. Letta. And I, I think that uh, when one starts a small bio, and I'm a person that thinks that sh being uh, fewer words is, is a significant way to begin a, fewer is more significant than many words, um, when the first word on the bio is to say former prime minister, you can kind of stop there. It's, a, it's a, though there are many other positions you've held uh, in ministers of, of commerce and, and European affairs as well, uh, an, a known scholar, a person who is absolutely suited to holding a role, a senior role, the leading role at, at uh, the Paris School of International Affairs and speaking to the question of uh, Brexit and its significance for the European project more generally. So with that, I will turn it over to, to uh, Enrico Letta and uh, thank you again for coming. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, everybody. I'm very glad to be here. I was here for the first time, I think, 17 years ago. Maybe Tony remembers, 17 years ago. I was at the beginning of, uh, for me, very, very interesting job as Minister of European Affairs. I was here with many hope, big hope, uh, many hairs have today still big hope, less hairs, and uh, I'm so glad to be here as today uh, partner of LSE, partners coming from, uh, uh, from Sciences Po. I thank you, Chris, for, for the presentation. I thank you, 
all to be for being here. For me, is is uh, is a very very interesting opportunity to share with you some ideas. First of all, on Brexit, but I would like to arrive uh, to uh, arrive uh, discussing Brexit before I prepare. I prepared some ideas about uh, Europe. Uh, my key statement today is to say that the referendum on Brexit could be a great opportunity to change Europe for the better. It could be, but we have not to miss this opportunity. This is my personal opinion, and this is why I'm trying here today to say a few words uh, on that point. Uh, of course, uh, before starting, uh, I would like to thank LSE, not only for hosting me today, but also for the great uh, work together uh, with Sciences Po, uh, London and Paris, working together, the students working together, uh, commuting, and the work that together we are doing at global level with Asian students, American students, with the Asian universities, the American, Latin American, African uh, universities, for me and for us is, of course, a, a great deal. But Brexit. I'll try in this presentation to say, first of all, a few words on the compass of the EU crisis. Why the compass? Because I decided to choose four cardinal points of the compass, four cardinal points of the crisis, and this choice for me is decisive to get some conclusions at the end on Brexit. And the second part of my speech will be around Brexit, how to take Brexit, the referendum on Brexit, as an opportunity. Of course, I just at the beginning I say very clearly, I am a very, very big supporter of keeping the UK on board of the European Union, so uh, it is for me important to say it uh, since the beginning, and I'll try to say why, both from the uh, European, uh, the continental European point of view, and from the UK point of view, if I may. So, uh, Altogether, we will be, I think, uh, successful in the big, big, big challenge that we have in the rest of the world, with the rest of the world. And my conclusion will be taking the example of the success of COP21 by saying how important is the multilateral system in the world of today, how neglected is the multilateral system in the world of today, and how impossible is to find solutions to the main difficult problems that today we are facing in the world without effective multilateral uh, tools. And uh, the European Union is the main pillar of this strategy. But the compass, <coughs> so the first cardinal point is the fragmented Europe. Europe today is fragmented, more fragmented than 10 years ago, more fragmented than the period pre-crisis, and why this fragmentation? First of all, because of the two new cleavages we are having today in the European uh, uh, Union. The two new cleavages are, the first one is a completely new one after the enlargement, uh, 2004, then 6, then 
13 with Croatia, east-west for the first time we are experiencing a big cleavage, a big east-west cleavage inside the European Union on crucial issues like uh, uh, Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict, like uh, uh, refugee crisis. It was not a minor uh, discussion, the one we, they had in the European Council among leaders coming from the eastern part of Europe or central part of Europe and the funding fathers. So for the first time we experienced this cleavage, this east-west cleavage that is today one of the new and key problems in the European fragmentation. But we are having today a big, it is not very new, cleavage north-south that is a typical economic <coughs> cleavage. The first one, the, the east-west, is a newly uh, political cleavage. Today we have, and I just uh, put together some, uh, uh, in my view, decisive and very important uh, uh, figures. These figures are the figures of the divergence between north and south of Europe. And when I say north, I, of course, I mean the Eurozone, and when I mean the Eurozone, I, 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 say I mean Germany. But I think this diverging Europe and the change between 2007 and 2014, so the aggregate of this change, in my view, is very impressive. Because it's the demonstration of what happened during the crisis and which Europe we have today after the crisis. We have a very different Europe than the Europe we had before. We had a Europe in which today we can easily say that Germany profited from the crisis. If we say these figures, the four figures for Germany are all positive from seven to now. All positive. Investment, unemployment, youth unemployment and the exclusion uh, subject that I put uh, at the end. If we take the Southern Europe uh, performances, all the performances in the aggregate of the seven years are negative. And of course, the key problem there was the impact of the interest rate, the spread, and the fact that for the investment it was quite impossible to invest in a part of Europe in crisis. So we are now at the end, maybe, hopefully, of the crisis in a situation in which, as I, the second big cleavage, the north-south, created a big gap. And this gap is today one, in my view, of the more difficult uh, situation for the European Union to deal with. The second big cardinal point of the euro crisis is the European Union responsible and scapegoat. What I mean, when I say responsible, I would like just to ask you to think what was in our mind the European Union before the euro, before 
these five euros. I take these five euros because some days ago I was in Seattle and I paid the taxi in Seattle and uh, I, I had this with some dollars in my uh, pocket and I pay ten dollars, five dollars and the mistake, I gave this five euros, the uh, color is the same of the dollars and the taxi man uh, asked me, what, what, is, what is this? <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, uh, there are euros. And he said, and what is euro? <laughs> and I said, by this, the currency of the European uh, Union, but I never saw. Uh, so before the euro, the European Union was something of always positive, at least neutral for our lives. Think about what was the European Union before the Euro. In the idea, the sequence of the responsibility, we put always the national government and the local authorities as responsible, in positive or in negative. We never said before the Euro is the European Union responsibility for something or we never blame the European Union for something, for anything before the Euro. The European Union was always something of giving us positive, positive uh, tools. Structural funds, uh, Erasmus, I, I can, there, there's a long list of many, many positive tools and it was something of positive. After the euro, having the euro in our, in our wallets, we immediately started to understand that uh, the uh, responsibility sequence changed completely. And today we have the European Union, the European political uh, authorities among the responsible, in positive or in negative, and with a big, big difference with the other th two national governments and local authorities. First of all, because for national governments and local authorities, you have a face, you have a voice, and you are able to vote against if you want to change it. If you want to change the national government, you have the elections, and you can vote for the opposition. If you can vote, if you want to change the measure, you have, uh, after five years, four, four years, you can change the measure. It is not the case for the European architecture because we were and we keep in the middle of this process. We had the currency, but the political responsibility is still a work in progress. And the consequence of that is exactly the scapegoat uh, issue. It is so easy to take the European Union as scapegoat. It is so easy because it's impossible for the European Union to reply, to react. Who is the European Union? It's very difficult to react, and it's very difficult, of course, uh, to avoid this scapegoat situation. And this scapegoat play is the favorite of our governments. They are very happy because it's so easy to say 
is because of the European Union. I have to raise taxes because it's the order of the European Union. I have to cut in the budget because of the European Union. I have to apply this uh, or the other directive and this rule because of the European Union. Of course, all the successes are because of the national governments, not because of the European Union. And the final picture, the big picture of this situation, is a picture in which, at the end of the day, it's very difficult to ask people to trust in the European Union. Because if the European Union is always in negative responsible for anything going wrong, you know we have also the big problem of the language problem. That is not, in my view, a secondary problem. Because you have all the national leaders speaking at home in their media, speaking the language that people uh, are very, very uh, easy to immediately understand in a direct link with their leaders. That is not the case of the European institutions. They speak through com press conferences or decisions. It is less immediate, the contact. And in my view, it is one of the key problems today of the... The third one is the, I say, Europe incomplete. I would say, first of all, the euro area, the economic monetary union. That is, in my view, the key problem. Today, we have the euro, but we have just the monetary union. We don't have the economic union. We know very well that is, this point is one of the key problems. We have the monetary union. The monetary union is working, is working very well. Mario Draghi is the demonstration that the monetary union is performing, is working. The big problem is, is it possible for a monetary union to work without uh, economic union? My answer is no. This is why at the beginning the idea was to build an economic and monetary union. But we didn't. The economic union is still incomplete for many reasons. And this problem is, is, is clear for many, many uh, subjects. The one, a la une, how is the banking system? The banking union is incomplete, and having the banking union incomplete uh, brings all the problems that we are having on the banking uh, system. But it is on not only the, the problem of the banking union, the problem is also for the rest of the single market. I would say I, I just mentioned one example that is, in my view, the most crucial one, the telecom single market. It is so difficult to have a single telecom market. We have 28 telecom market in Europe. We have mobile phones, and we have for uh, each European country four, five operators because the markets are separated. We have 28 markets. But what is the consequence of that? The consequence is that in Europe as a whole, we have around 70 operators in telecom. 70. In the United States, they have four operators. In China, they have four operators. And of course, the dimension of the four Americans the four Chinese 
and the 70 Europeans is completely different. In a world of today, we need dimension. Without scale, without dimension, it is impossible to deal. I mentioned this point, but the uh, key problem of the uh, economic and monetary union incomplete, is, in my view, is one of the... And the fourth point of the crisis is Europe shaken by the refugee crisis. And it is a key problem, we know very well. First of all, because it is linked to Brexit, it's nothing to do technically with Brexit. But in terms of public opinion, in my view, the link between the two topics is enormous, is a key link. The fact that today the continental Europe is in a, in a chaos because we are not able to, uh, to deal, to face this huge problem, a problem for which we weren't prepared, absolutely not. Uh, who is to blame for, I don't know, but uh, what I know is that for the first time we are experiencing such a decisive, difficult issue like the one uh, on uh, uh, refugees. The problem of, uh, uh, of, of uh, refugee and the refugee crisis today is so difficult also because for the first time we had such a crisis. I underline the point that we never had such a crisis in 70 years. Even the refugee crisis after the Berlin uh, Wall, Berlin uh, Fall, uh, was not comparable with this one because the refugee crisis after the Berlin, the Berlin, uh, fall, wall, the Berlin Wall fall was um, a crisis in an homogeneity of uh, cultural, uh, ethnical uh, traditions, religions. That is not the case today. Today the, the difficulty is linked to the fact that we have, uh, and, uh, and because also the crisis is focused on few countries. There are just three, four countries really, really affected and really with big, big difficulty in facing the problem. And the, the countries are, first of all, Germany. We are not completely aware of what is going on in Germany in this, in this very period. 1,000, sorry, 100,000 refugees coming in the months of January. When I say and when I think to what is 100,000 in comparison with the problems that in my country, Italy, or in France, we are having when 5,000 people are arriving, 100,000 in one month, after 200,000 in December, it is something that we are not completely aware of the consequence in terms of uh, internal uh, discussion problems uh, and so on and so forth. So, and of course, I, I, I say Germany, but uh, Italy, Greece, the countries of the, of the Mediterranean, and many others, of course. Uh, I think this crisis is the demonstration of the we weren't prepared. We are today. Uh, we, we have to face uh, with new ideas, with a new uh, paradigm in uh, discussing how to deal with uh, uh, what is, in my view, necessary, uh, 
a sort of Marshall Plan to Africa, to Northern Africa. Without that, it will be impossible for uh, the next decade to uh, think of the Mediterranean like a stable or a positive uh, uh, mare nostrum. It will continue to be a mare mortum, not a mare nostrum, unfortunately. So uh, this issue is uh, overlapping Brexit discussion without any concrete link. And uh, I would like to raise this point because it's uh, one of the key points. I remember the Polish plumber. Do you remember the Polish plumber? The Polish plumber was the famous topic that two weeks before the referendum in France on the European Constitution entered the electoral campaign for the referendum and changed completely the direction of the discussion because the problem was not anymore the discussion on the values of the uh, European, the, the Constitution in Europe. That was in 2005 the topic. But the point was how to avoid the Polish plumber. So how to avoid in the period of the first big enlargement to be invaded, that was the French fear, by Polish plumbers. And the, Polish, the, the fear of the Polish plumber uh, changed completely the result of the referendum. The referendum uh, had uh, no result because of this Polish plumber. Some period later, some months later, somebody tried to understand how many Polish plumbers worked really in France. And at the end of the day, they discovered that 13 Polish plumbers worked in France. But these 13 Polish plumbers were able to change completely the history of the European Union. Because without the referendum in France, the constitution died. And without a constitution, we had a completely different direction in our history. What I would like to say is that um, this Polish plumber story with the French referendum is not so different from the discussion here in the UK on the uh, referendum. Because in the same time, there's this big, big topic of the refugee crisis. Nothing to do with Brexit referendum. But the key topic today in the continental Europe is this big discussion on the refugee crisis. And it is very easy for the UK public opinion to overlap and to put together with the big risk to have not a referendum on the UK in or out the European Union, an historic decision. But we risk to have a referendum on refugees. That is, of course, in my view, a big risk. I think a repetition of the Polish plumber situation will be terrible. This is why my approach to the European Union situation today is that the status quo is impossible. I really can't agree with those who think that 
We can't stay in a status quo because of the elections today, because of the elections in uh, France next year, because of the elections in Germany next year, and because of the referendum in the UK. My fear and my feeling is that uh, the status quo is impossible. Keeping the status quo means going back. Because the rays of nationalisms, the rays of this very, very big fight inside the European discussion will create a situation in which on the main topics it will be impossible to improve, to move, and to solve the four cardinal points of the crisis that I mentioned. Uh, Jean Monnet always said that to do something of positive for Europe, we need a crisis. Without a crisis, it is impossible to uh, get positive improvement and positive results. So maybe we need a shock. This is why I think, but we had many shocks in the uh, the, the slide of the, of the around the diverging Europe is the demonstration of all the shocks we had, the raise of the unemployment, the raise of youth unemployment in southern Europe. This is why I fear many Italian students, Spanish students are here in London because of this terrible situation we are having in southern Europe. So is the nightmare and in my view is the main, main, main goal to face these terrible uh, uh, figures on uh, youth unemployment in the South. So I think the UK referendum can be a big opportunity. Can be a big opportunity. And the UK referendum can be a big opportunity for many reasons. And my idea, my big idea, is that uh, we have to take this opportunity. When in trouble, go big, we say. So we are in trouble, we have to go big. What does it mean, go big today? I am not completely sure, frankly speaking, that a negotiation on some dossier, on some details, can solve the problem of the relationship between the UK and the, Euro the rest of the European Union. I'm not sure that this kind of very technical, with technocrats' decisions on some topics, treaties, can be enough because of the crisis we are having. My fear and my feeling is that we need to go big. And when I say go big, maybe we have to really take seriously the referendum and the challenge of the referendum. What, what does it mean, take seriously the challenge of the referendum? Of course, many, many ideas on that, but the challenge of the referendum is, first of all, the fact that um, the discussion in the UK about the future is a discussion in which there is something that is, in my view, is absolutely true. I am against Brexit, I am supporter of the UK in, but I know very well that in the UK, since the beginning, there was a key point, and this key point of the discussion, we keep this point still today in an ambiguity, and this point is about the ever closer union. 
The ever closer union, in my view, is the key of this situation. The ever closer union is the main goal for all the European uh, architecture. The big idea is to say ever closer union is the final destination for all the European architecture. That was since the beginning. And it is written in the treaties. It is written in the, in the Lisbon Treaty. It, was not, it is not the bad word federalism, but it is a sort of federalism. But we say ever closer union is a sort of federalism with the small f. But the key point is that in my view, we have to be aware that the final destination is not common between all the different countries. And this is why the two-circle Europe, in my view, is the solution. What does it mean? Two-circle Europe. Europe means a first circle, the circle uh, of a larger union, a larger Europe, and this large Europe means the Europe with the 28, with the UK, maybe a union, a large union, attractive also for countries like Switzerland or Norway, others. Countries with the idea to be and to share with the rest of Europe many policies, like the single market, foreign trade, foreign and security policy, without having the ever-closer union as the final destination in mind. Because it is clear that for the majority of the UK people, the ever-closer union is not the topic. And we know that changing this idea can create also the positive condition in favor of the rest of the European Union. When I say two-circle Europe, I say a large circle in which the UK can uh, be comfortable with and a core Europe, the Euro area. And the Euro area means the countries uh, accepting the Euro and being in the same uh, big, big project of the uh, Euro, Euro, but with the main topic and the main goal to complete the uh, economic and monetary union. And so, uh, Euro area, a core Europe, more integrated with the economic union and not only the monetary union, with this idea that I uh, strongly support to create a super Euro finance minister, super Euro finance minister is... Uh, but communication is important today. We, we, we have to present this idea. In my view, this idea is the idea to have uh, to overcome the big problems of the uh, European, uh, the, of the Euro area today. A super Euro finance minister with two big roles, two big goals. The first one, to keep all the countries in respect of rules. So with the yellow card, the red card, for what is linked to the problems of the uh, budgetary discipline and the rest. Because it is absolutely clear today and we are aware, one country 
having irresponsible uh, behaviors is able to affect all the other countries, is able to expand the virus. We had the experience in, uh, in the last years. At the same time, this Eurofinance minister, in my view, has to lead the European stability mechanism. That is one of the most important new tools we created during the crisis. The European stability mechanism is today a very important tool with money, but today we are not using and we are not uh, taking the opportunity of this very important uh, new tool to be able to, to do what? To create, in my view, the European Monetary Fund. That is one of the key issues to overcome the crisis. At the beginning, when the crisis arrived, Ireland was the first country in crisis, and we had, if you remember, the need to ask the IMF to come from the US to Europe to rescue Ireland. In my view, it was necessary at that time because we didn't have in Europe any tool to solve such a problem, but today is a big problem. The IMF, the Troika uh, tools were in the Greek situation one of the big problems because of the communication, the relationship with the public opinion, and the fact that we, the Europeans, we need to have a European tool, not an monetary, international monetary fund. An European tool uh, managed by the finance, the Euro finance minister. Able also to give to the public opinion a face, because we can't leave the Euro just with the face of Mario Draghi. Mario Draghi and the um, European Central Bank is the only euro institution. And it is not enough. Because the euro is so important, he's in our wallet, but without a face, without a voice, and I add one key point, with this big democratic problem. At the euro level, we live in a sort of European West Lothian question. We, you know very well who, what is the West, West Lothian question in the UK. But we have the same situation, symmetric situation, in the European Union. When Mario Draghi, the president of the central bank, has to talk with his parliament, he goes to the European Parliament, he's the only parliament for him. But discussing for him to the European Parliament means discussing with French member of parliament, Italian member of parliament, German, and British too. And the UK is not member of the Euro. When Mark Carney has to talk with his parliament, he talks with uh, the British member of parliament without having any discussion with Italians or with French. Or uh, You can imagine a discussion between Mark Carney and Italians or French or Germans or Greeks. It's unbelievable. But it is what happened when Mario Draghi has to discuss with his own parliament. So we need to have also a joint, in my view, parliamentary committee able to be 
the democratic partner of, of this uh, architecture that is necessary to avoid a new crisis, necessary to avoid a new crisis. If not, the status quo, in my view, will bring us towards uh, the end of what we uh, experienced that as the uh, European uh, dream. This is why my conclusion, the world of tomorrow and the small Europe. We are small as Europeans. I would say the European countries are divided in two. The small countries I think this point is a key point because 90, in, in the 80s, China was 2% of the world economy and Europe was 30% of the world econ economy. Today, China is 70% of the world economy and Europe is 18% of the world economy. The G7 in 74 when the G7 was founded, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, UK, US. Four Europeans out of seven. The G7 in 2034, Brazil, China, India, Japan, US, Russia, Korea. No European countries there if we take the ranking of the big economies. Today, the European Union as a whole is the number one in the world. And in 2034, the European Union will be at the same level of China and US as a whole. It will be impossible for our countries separated to be at the same level of importance than the importance we had in last century. Altogether, we are unbeatable. That is, in my view, the key point. And the case of climate, climate change on uh, the COP21 was a demonstration. And I raise your attention in my conclusion on the COP21 on climate change because I think that it is a topic that is the demonstration of the need of Europe in the world, of the need of European values without a strong Europe in the world, we will be represented with Europeans, maybe by the Americans, when they will discuss with the Chinese in the next 20 years. And it is not enough for the world, not only for us, not only for our, because we are proud of being European, but for the world, because our European values climate change, environment, human rights, workers' rights, and many others, are European values for us not... We can't uh, keep these values in a secondary terms. We have to uh, work, we, can to, we have to work and we have to... Uh, be successful in our idea of Europe, not only because of Europe, not only because of the European integration, not only because uh, uh, Schumann, Adenauer, uh, De Gasperi and the past, not only because Mitterrand and Kohl hand in hand in the 
in Verdun saying that uh, no more war among us. This is finished. The point is about the future, and the future is that the European values are important for the world of uh, uh, tomorrow, and only together we will be able to keep these values uh, uh, winning, successful in the world of uh, tomorrow. This is why I think our engagement has to be st so strong. This is why the referendum on Brexit is not only a UK domestic topic, this is why it's so important for all of us. Thank you. Well, this is an opportunity to, uh, to um, address some questions uh, to, to, to Enrique Letta. If you could identify yourself in so doing, we have roving mics. <coughs> and do keep your question. It's not a, a political platform for a long statement. It's actually a point for discussion. So we could start over here. Yeah. Thank you very much indeed for a fascinating talk. Your concluding remarks prompt me to ask. Next year, it's the 60 years since the uh, Treaty of Rome was signed. You are, please identify yourself, sorry. Sorry, 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 sorry. If you could identify yourself. I'll start again. I'll start again. Uh, John Newham, I'm a teacher of politics and history, and my question, in the light of your concluding remarks, is whether the time has come for a complete rewriting of the Treaty of Rome, some European equivalent um, of the Philadelphia Convention. Uh, let's see. Let's take uh, a cluster of three there, right there. You wait to the mic. My name is Rupert de Borgraf. Whether you talk about a European stability mechanism or a European monetary fund, it's a Eurozone finance ministry. And ultimately, the Germans will have to pay, whether it's risk sharing or transfer union or whatever you call it. But the Germans don't want to pay. And they don't want to pay because they see Southern Europe as corrupt, mismanaged, and without an adequate reform program. Second question you mentioned a Marshall Plan for North Africa. The biggest economy in North Africa is Algeria. That economy has been mired in corruption and weak leadership and mismanagement for a long time. Obviously, it's a colonial history, and it's a very prickly one with France. But ultimately, you can't have a Marshall Plan into regions where the money is simply going to vanish, and there won't be any productive outcome on the ground. Okay, one more question out here. Uh, Jake Van Grieken, an A-level student. How do you think that a British exit from the EU would affect our relationship with the US? So easy questions. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, of course, what I, I said means that it is impossible to keep the status quo with the present treaties. I know it is very difficult to uh, convince the French, for instance, to enter a new discussion on treaty changes, because they are so scared about what happened in the previous referendum. But the key problem is that with these treaties, with this ambiguity, for instance, on the ever closer union, it is impossible, in my view, to, uh, to be successful in what is necessary to, uh, to do today. So I think it is, uh, I, I, am, I am among those thinking that the referendum in, in the UK is not a bad word. 
in my view, it's something of positive for the UK, but it is something of positive for, uh, for Europe. First of all, because when people are involved and uh, uh, it's democracy, and in my view, it's something of very positive. At the European level, we need such a, a step into a, a, new, a new... You mentioned Germany, and you're right, but I, I have to <coughs> tell you that when I was Prime Minister, I was always in Germany, and always with a paper with the figures, and always I tried to speak with German uh, uh, shareholders and stakeholders, big pillars of German society, with these figures, 81, 63, 54, and 35. These figures are the contribution of the four big European uh, euro area countries to the European stability mechanism in the period of the re rescue uh, of Greece. And 84, 81 is Germany, 63 is France, 54 is Italy, and 35 is Spain. Italy and France gave more than German uh, gave, in terms of, uh, of course, uh, comparative. But what is the key point? The key point is linked to the rules of the different countries. For Germany, because of their constitutional uh, rules and because of their constitutional court, for every decision to pay something to the European Union, it is a sort of national drama, if I may say. Is a sort of big discussion. They are obliged because of their because their constitution, and this discussion gives the idea to the world that Germans are paying for the rest of the European Union. That is not true. That is not true. Germans are paying less than Italians and French are paying or paid to rescue the but for Italians. French and the others, it was more automatic, less dramatic, without all this communication dramatic activity. That created the idea, because the word of today is, first of all, communication. I would say, unfortunately, I'm not very, as you know, very happy of this, with this, uh, because I think reality is more important than uh, communication. And the facts here are showing that the, the discussion on, uh, on the future of the European, of the responsibility on how to be accountable, how to take our own responsibility is one of the key issues. So um, it is true that the Germans are reluctant, but they were reluctant to the banking union, they were reluctant to the European stability mechanism, they were not reluctant against the quantitative easing of Mario Draghi, and we did it. We started with the banking union. It is incomplete. We have to complete it. If not, it is not a success. They, we have the European stability mechanism with this uh, amount of money, and we have the quantitative easing. Uh, the president of the Bundesbank, uh, Weidmann, in the board of directors of uh, the ECB, <coughs> votes always against. But he is in minority in this position. 
and even, even Chancellor Merkel uh, support Draghi's uh, position. So um, I think this is why I think the idea of the super finance minister of the euro is a positive one because the super finance minister of the euro is also a way to say to the Germans we create a sort of union of values. Uh, this super finance minister has to apply the two main values, the German one and the, Lat and the Latin one. The German one is the values of, of uh, responsibility and the Latin one is the value of solidarity. We have to put together these two because I was really impressed because in the last uh, three months, maybe, in the European Union, we heard a lot of time the word solidarity. And the word solidarity was a gros mot, as the French say. It was impossible to say solidarity in the last 10 years in Europe. It was a very bad word. Assistentialism, I would say socialism or solidarity was not good. But today solidarity is the word of the German government. Solidarity in November was the word of the French government. The French asked solidarity because of uh, the attacks, because of Daesh. The Germans asked solidarity because of the refugees. Uh, they're right. The key point is that a European Union, as European integration without solidarity doesn't, doesn't work. This is why I think today we have to uh, build new architecture having solidarity and responsibility. I put responsibility. I strongly support the idea of a super finance minister of the euro because I need and I think it is necessary to avoid the idea that uh, the different European countries can be completely free to start again with deficit, debt, raising deficit uh, and so on and so forth. Because it's very easy at national level to say yes to all the answers. Say yes means more money to spend. But uh, deficit and debt are, in my view, the key point. Uh, and keeping deficit and debt uh, under control means that we are successful and we are able to say to the rest of the world, we are accountable. We can trust in Europe. So you mentioned the corruption in Algeria, and of course you're right. But the key point is that um, in my view, we made a terrible mistake at the European level in the last 25 years. A terrible mistake was to say in the period of the Euro integration, the economic and monetary union, we decided to choose the East as the only direction of our external engagement and we completed and we completely forgot the Mediterranean North Africa 
we didn't do anything. I remember 95, Barcelona. Barcelona was the big, big conference launching the Euro-Mediterranean project. It was in Barcelona, it was some years before uh, the Euro, and it was a big, big event at that time. Many expectations, many ideas, nothing after these facts, after these words, these expectations. And uh, the result, of course, is, that it is a result in which, for instance, Chinese investments in Egypt are overcoming uh, the European ones. I was really um, shocked when I, after the, in my view, the, the very the big mistake of the war in Libya in 11, the Italian uh, army took all the civil uh, workers in Libya and they uh, rescued them out of Libya. And we discovered that in Libya there were more Chinese working, more Turks working than Europeans. It was enormous. So what I want to say is that uh, uh, the, the North Africa, the south of the, of the Mediterranean, is something that is in our heart and something that is in our interest to make it stable, to make it successful, and to make it prosperous. That is not uh, uh, today the case, but it is something of necessity. You mentioned the, the, the relationship between the UK and the US. Uh, the transatlantic relationship, in my view, is one of the key issues today. Fortunately, we, we discovered this relationship. And I think at the end of the day, the fact to have today a G7 instead of the G8 is something of positive, because we need to have uh, a place where European and Americans, they have to talk together. We have to uh, share, because in the world of today, it is absolutely necessary to have on trade, on security, on main issues, a common European and American uh, position. So uh, this is why, this is another issue why the UK is so important in the European uh, Union, because the UK can help and helps very much the European Union to, um, to, to, to stay close to the, uh, to the United States. Of course, I hope the United States will be close also to Europe. And I don't know what uh, 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 Trump, as president of the United States, will uh, invent on that topic, but uh, we are not uh, there until now, so it's, uh, uh, until now it's just a nightmare. <laughs> Three more questions here. Hi, I'm James O'Rourke from the LSE Italian Society. Uh, my question relates to Brexit. Um, 15, 20 years ago, when Britain was considering whether or not to join the euro, a lot of people said that you know, the financial centre of the UK would move away to Frankfurt, millions of jobs would be lost. And in fact, over the past 15, 20 years, we've seen London confirmed as the financial centre of Europe, if not the world. Britain actually has the strongest growth in Europe. And so a lot of these arguments have been shown to perhaps you know, not have been so valid. 
So what's different about the arguments this time round with Brexit, given that a lot of the same arguments are coming out? Thank you. Can we take one up here? Hi. Um, I just want to thank you for a really interesting talk. Um, my name... Hello, can you hear me? Good. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Wiren Nee. Um, I just wanted to talk... I mean, you mentioned um, two words which were important in the EU project, which was solidarity and responsibility. Um, I think there's a British word which is also quite important, which is reason. Hello? Speak up. Um, yeah. Um, because I, I think what's worth kind of exploring is the sort of sentiments that um, sort of motivates Brexit, if you like. I mean, what is visible is that they see something like the refugee crisis, they see the Eurozone crisis, and um, I think people want control. People want control of their borders, people want control of their uh, monetary and fiscal instruments. And, um, and the question here is that um, are people making a mistake? Is there a misconception? Is there a difference between reality and perception? Is the, um, the loss of control and the kind of um, and having more um, a closer union actually more desirable? I mean, these are, I think, questions that are kind of worth asking. And, and I mean, communication, I think, is important because people are going to make judgments based on what they see. And if what they see isn't completely the whole entire picture, then obviously it's worthwhile addressing the positive sort of effects of the European integration project. Great. And then another one in the far corner up there. <coughs> Hi, I'm uh, Ed Jones. I'm a uh, work for GK Strategy, a political consultancy, and used for be a student at LSE. You uh, mentioned the illustrious Mr. Trump uh, there, just towards the end of the last uh, round of questions. And I just wanted to ask: um, Trump, Bernie Sanders in America are part of a larger trend that seems to be sweeping across the West. If you look at Jeremy Corbyn here in the UK, Podemos in Spain, Syriza in Greece increasingly Western citizens seem to be turning on the establishment. So in your assessment, do you think, uh, what effect will this trend have on the likely outcome of a Brexit vote? I always try to say when I am in London discussing with uh, British people uh, that uh, London was not the financial capital of the world 30 years ago. One, London today is one of the three, four financial capital in the world. And this success, I know it's not easy what I'm saying, but uh, I'm completely convinced, this success, it is not only because of the UK. It is not only because of the competitiveness of the UK. This success is also because of the fact that London is the door for the rest of the world for the richest market in the world, that is the single market. The success of the single market, that is the biggest success of the European integration. We are in a single market and we are able to 
move, we are able to work, we are able to consider this market as a, a unique market is one of the key of the success uh, also of London as financial capital of the world. This is why I think for the future, in case of Brexit, it will be different because London uh, will, be, uh, will be different from the London we are uh, having today. London will be the capital of uh, the UK, will be an important financial capital, but I'm sure that uh, the future of uh, London will be different out of the single market. And I can't, frankly speaking, I can't um, understand why the model that the supporters of Brexit can be Norway, Singapore, or Switzerland. And frankly speaking, I, it is not... <laughs> but how can a British be really proud to be like Norway, like Singapore, and like uh, Switzerland? The role of the UK was a key, and it is a key role in Europe. It's not a marginal role in Europe. It is not possible to compare the role of Norway. Frankly speaking, I love Norway, but it's uh, unbelievable how this argument of being Norway, as a Norway is so important is in, in, in the discussion here. With this strange idea of being um, a sort of big Norway, with this very strange situation for Norway. Norway is linked to the single, to the internal market. They are obliged to apply all the rules that we, the Europeans, we decide without them. It is so strange for the British to say, okay, we expect you decide for us in the future. This is why I, I think the discussion about the future of the, uh, the, the key point is that the pro-in needs to have a very strong voice. We didn't have this voice until now. In the main discussion, the big dis national discussion in the UK, uh, we heard a lot of voices against, but a very, very shy voices in favor. There are many, many arguments in favor and against Brexit, like the one I mentioned just, uh, just now. But also the topic about uh, border controls and refugees that you mentioned is also another topic. Because if we think, if they think, with Brexit we can manage uh, successfully the refugee crisis in the UK, in my view it is... Uh, it is not true, very frankly speaking, it is not true. I ask always, is it possible to think with this kind of big refugee crisis that is the biggest in the last 70 years, is it possible to find national solutions and to have just national solutions to this crisis? My answer is no. It is impossible to 
solve these crises with national solutions. It is not just a, pro a problem of borders. I add there's something more, the problem of security after uh, November the 13th in Paris. We, they had borders between France and Belgium, but the terrorists passed the border. They were controlled, but because of the lack of cooperation between uh, intelligences, uh, no one of the uh, terrorists were uh, blocked. If we, I think we have to know that the, the next step there is the step on a sort of uh, European FBI, a sort of uh, intelligence at the European level. Without this intelligence, we will continue to work at national level with the intelligence at national level against terrorists who are global. And this is one of the key problems we are uh, facing today. Uh, on security, it is very, very difficult to blame the European Union. The problem there is, is a problem of uh, uh, national sovereignty, not the European Union. Because on, on security, on home affairs, as you know very well, the so-called third Maastricht pillar was the most intergovernmental ma uh, uh, pillar without any any competence to the uh, communitarian uh, um, institutions. So I think the word solidarity, the borders, the situation of refugees is obliging us, is pushing us to understand that it is necessary to have a European level performing, successfully performing. If not, it is impossible. It is impossible to deal with the countries of, or, of origin. It is impossible so to, to have different lists of sure countries. I give you the example of the so-called list of sure countries. Uh, we had just some weeks ago the decision of three countries. Uh, I don't want to quote the names of the countries, but three countries saying that refugees coming from Kosovo, they are coming from a sure country. So they can't have the status of refugees. One of the three countries, the decision was blocked by the internal rules, the constitutional court, for whatever. And so in Europe we have some countries saying Kosovo is a sure country and some countries saying not, Kosovo is not a sure country. That is, of course, impossible to manage a situation in which you have such a, a fragmented and differentiated rules. This is why I think, and this is why I push on this topic to a more coordinated and more European approach. We need to have a migration policy in Brussels. But it is not the fault of Brussels if we don't have this policy. It's because of the countries. It's not because of Brussels, frankly speaking. I know Brussels is not very popular in this very period, but nobody defends Brussels. On this topic is not Brussels' responsibility, but we need to have a coordinated common migration policy. If not, it would be impossible to solve and to, to deal with these problems in the next years. 
we will have for many years the migration problem. It is not finished. And, uh, and it is not solved because there is the sea. The UK is not uh, out of the problem because of the sea. And because it's cold, it's colder than the Mediterranean. And it's not like that. It is not like that. There's the climate change. <laughs> but uh, it, the, the, the key problem is there. Uh, your point about the fight between uh, the cleavage, people establishment, is a very good one. And I think is the key point because we had, and in Italy we, we are uh, uh, completely aware of the problem because two years and a half ago, Three years ago, we had uh, the elections, and in these elections, the cleavage, people against establishment, was one of the key cleavages. The same cleavage was uh, crucial in France and in Spain for the last elections. And the success of the, can of the uh, Podemos, uh, Ciudadanos, uh, the success of uh, Le Pen in France, uh, it was a success linked to this idea of people against establishment, the elite. Trump, Sanders are explaining us that the topic is not only an European topic, it's something more complex. This is why I think we have to understand that uh, the political uh, discussion is a, is a very interesting topic for uh, a place like uh, LSE or Sciences Po, because we are uh, seeing that the situation is changing completely, first of all because of the internet. In my view is the key engine, the key change is because of the internet. The internet, the internet, the complete transparency in which we, uh, the, the political life is today, the fact that uh, there is no intermediation, there is a uh, uh, the, the, the possibility to talk, the possibility to discuss, the fact that parties are, not, are no more um, uh, useful, the fact that, uh, for instance, the cost of an electoral campaign is no more a topic. It was a topic five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago. Today is not a topic. There's this, uh, in my view, very interesting uh, example coming from my country. A party, a new party, the Five Star Movement, get, got the same amount of votes of two old parties without spending almost anything. And uh, what is happening in uh, uh, the U.S. with Sanders and Clinton is the demonstration of the completely different influence of money in politics. That is, in my view, one, one of the most interesting and, I would say, most positive thing of the situation because we, uh, I, am, I, I can't agree with the idea that everything is negative today, uh, Sanders, uh, uh, populist parties, and, and so on and so forth. There are a lot of positive uh, changes. One of the positive changes is the fact that today uh, money is less important for the political campaign because of the internet, the possibility to be in contact and to have an idea without 
the need for the candidate to spend a lot of money and, of course, to take also a lot of money and uh, with all the problems linked to that. So, in my view, uh, the, 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 the question is, is a very complex question, but it's a very complicated question also for our establishments. This is why I mentioned LSE and Sciences Po. Because the problem, the key problem is not only um, people establishment, it's also uh, competent people and not competent people. It's the idea that competence is not so important because I have Google. So it's not very difficult to find solutions like Google. But uh, uh, the key problem, and for our establishment, for uh, our uh, Sciences Po, LSE, the university world, is necessary to reinvent the reason why we are so important. And we are so important not because we give to the students all the information they can get to Google. We are so important because we search with the students the compass. And the compass is necessary to be in Google and to find not only the information we have, uh, whatever we want, but also to find the cardinal points of the compass and to know how to use all this amount of information we have and how to be flexible to adapt knowing that uh, when I was at the university the idea was to train people for the normality period telling him be cautious because there's the normality period, but there is also some time, some crisis. But the crisis is an exception. After the crisis, you have a new long normality period. That is not the case today. We have to train people to be aware that we live in a sequence of crisis. And for our LSE, Sciences Po, it is a new challenge. Crisis is the normality. This is why I think in Paris they thought to an Italian. Because for us, crisis is the normality <laughs> since the beginning. But it is true. Crisis today is the normality. And we have to be flexible. We have to adapt ourselves. We have to respond to the crisis, to react and uh, this is why I think the idea of education today, high-level education, is one of the ideas that we have to reinvent, to reinvent the reasons, to sell the reasons, because this idea of uh, establishment people is also the idea of non-competent competent. And uh, it is something of very important for, for, for all of us, I think. At the risk of inducing a crisis, just one more question right here. Thank you. 
Thank you very much. So my name is Judith Milliker, member of Chatham House. Um, my first question would be, don't you think that the two-circle solution you're proposing uh, would just not, well, that it would create a new cleavage? And second question is, so uh, the UK is already famous for being an opt-out country, like that it's the country with uh, like the biggest number of opt-outs in Europe. And so when you're saying that you have the, the two circles, I suppose that the UK would be in the slower or not core circle. But would it not maybe be better if, uh, because the UK also is sort of, getting disengaged in, in Europe. Like, they, uh, they pulled out of the European People's Party, in, uh, of the European Parliament. Um, there are a number of senior um, diplomats in Brussels has gone down. Like, um, David Cameron is barely showing up together um, with uh, Francois Hollande and Angela Merkel. Would it not be maybe better if they pulled out and uh, let the rest of the EU go forward without them? Uh, a provocative I, question. Thank you. I, uh, I say circle and not speed exactly because there is a big difference between a two-speed Europe and two-circle Europe. It's not a problem just of terminology. Uh, when you have different speeds, you can have the same destination with different speeds. Here, the key point is that we have to know that the destination is different. There's the UK in the UK, I think, but we will uh, see in the referendum, probably the majority of the people thinks that staying and being part of the European Union without the ever closer union as final destination is a good uh, topic, is a good uh, uh, goal for the future, is, is something of positive. For the continental Europe, the idea of having the euro in our wallets and keeping the rest completely separated is completely crazy because the euro will collapse and if the euro will collapse, I'm sure that somebody will, will be happy of that. Uh, frankly speaking, when uh, uh, we will be back in my country with the lira, I, I hope to be uh, very far from there uh, in, in this very moment. Uh, and it's the same for the rest of uh, the euro area, uh, because we think that... Uh, so the key point is that we need to know that we, we, we have to work on different, on two different um, circles. And of course, the cleavage, you mentioned the cleavage, but the cleavage is, is, is there. We have to manage a cleavage, an existing cleavage. The cleavage is so high that we are risking Brexit. And uh, the idea of a two-circle Europe is to avoid Brexit because I'm sure that Brexit will be the first step of the European final decline. I am I, I'm very much involved, and this is why I'm here today on this topic, because I think it is not just an UK domestic discussion. It is a European discussion. And because the Brexit will be the first step of the European decline. So 
we have to work to avoid it. In my view, it will be also a big problem for the UK too. I mentioned uh, London as financial capital, but if you ask me, I will mention also, I would mention also Scotland, the future of the UK will be in discussion, in my view, in case of Brexit. Uh, of course, it's a UK discussion, but uh, it is another topic. So I think there are many issues, but what is important is that if we think with what I try to, 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 to give he, here in, uh, in this afternoon as an idea of the future, the future of the European Union in the world is a future in which we will not, we are not anymore the center of the world. We were the center of the world. We are not the center of the world. And the future will be different. This is not pessimism. This is realism. The world is moving towards East, towards Asia. I was uh, very much impressed. I'm sure that many of you visited the Expo in Milan. The Expo in Milan <coughs> had 100 pavilions. Very good. Very interesting to, uh, to see. I, when I was there, I tried to see the different pavilions with the idea and putting them in two groups. The pavilions telling me something about the future and the pavilions telling me something about the, the present or the past. And it, it was unbelievable at the end of this exercise the list of the pavilion that I wrote were the pavilions telling me the future, were all the pavilions in the eastern side of the world. And the pavilions saying, telling me something about the past or the present were all the European and the American. And, and uh, I think it is a, a, a key issue the world is changing. There are many, many examples. I, I don't want to, to continue on that. Uh, time is over. But the key point is that we have to be aware of that, and we have to prepare a future in which we, the European, we can still be at the center of the world, even if we are smaller. But we can do it, and we can try to push and to... Uh, strengthen our European values and the strength of European values in the world only if we are aware of this change of dimensions in the world and if you are aware of the fact that only together we can be influent. If not separated, we will be less influent, more isolated, and, uh, and the European Union will be still very attractive, but attractive as... Uh, uh, universities, tourism, culture, not for pr producing the future. This is, in my view, the, the key point. This is why I think a big responsibility is, big responsibility is in the hands of LSE, of Sciences Po, because here we think, and here we try to train and to link our thinking, our thought to the future. 
And this is why I think our work uh, needs to be uh, worked with this, work with this uh, idea of uh, with this European united uh, idea, and it is necessary to to be absolutely uh, determined on on this issue. And uh, I am I'm not pessimist. I'm optimist. I we had. Uh, uh, and we are having very, very important discussions on, on this topic, and it is not true that multilateralism is at the end. COP21 is the demonstration. Without multilateralism, it will be impossible to find solutions to the, more, to the most difficult subject we have in our life. Climate change is one of them, migrants is another one. It is impossible to sell to the people the fact that we have national solutions to these global issues. It is absolutely ridiculous to seriously say we have national solutions to the migrant crisis or to the climate change. It is impossible. This is why the multilateral system, the supranational system needs big engagement and I think places like LSE can play, can play really a key role. Thank you.